2: Listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, you beautiful people. Thank you for downloading this podcast because that means you are engaged with the independent music movement, whatever you'd like to call it, whether it's punk, hardcore, indie rock, emo, all of those genres, none of those genres, as long as it is in small, sweaty rooms at one point. And you booked your own shows, you put out your own records, you took your own photos. I mean, well, that doesn't, but you ha- you took photos of other people. You get the point. I'm very excited to have a person whose work I respect. I mean, I, to be clear, I respect everybody's work, but <laughs> the work that she does for independent music in regards to her particular magazine. So her name is Georgia Rawson. She's the Editor from Discovered magazine. And how you spell discovered, just drop all the vowels, and that is what you got. So, Discovered, based out of the United Kingdom. I got keyed into them probably about two, two and a half years ago. Uh, it was basically right as it, around the pandemic starting, and I just became aware of the magazine, started to subscribe pretty shortly after that. And I love what they do. They do a really, really good job of talking to bands that are, you know, established and also really hyping up some new and upcoming bands. Basically, I I feel a very large kinship with this magazine because they do what I feel like that this podcast does as well. It just kind of keys you into, you know... Bands that are, are, like I said, have a legacy and exist, and then the new and upcoming stuff. I just love that. And so I wanted to have Georgia on because Discovered Magazine is celebrating their 10-year anniversary. They've been doing it for quite some time. So mad respect for her and all of the contributors of this particular magazine. She was very gracious in the fact that uh, she stayed up very late one night. To have this chat. And so, um, you know, she apologized profusely. It was just like, oh, I feel a little tired. I feel a little punchy. And I, I thought she did a great job. So that is what we got. Let's uh, talk about things you can do for me, the show. You can always leave a rating and review. For $0 on Apple Podcasts. I would greatly appreciate that. Same thing can be said for Spotify. You just need to click the star rating in your preferred app, Uh, but not preferred app, it's Spotify, obviously. I got to direct you towards that. But you can always email the show, 100 podcast at gmail.com. If this is your first time here, I respond to emails. (laughs) Like I love getting feedback, whether it's guest ideas, you know, I listened to this episode and I really, this particular point resonated with me whatever. I'd love to hear all that. So, um, also I want to shout out, I, I mean, go to shows in general, super fun, right? <laughs> but, uh, I got to bring my 11 year old son to a stray from the path and dying wish and the devil Wars Prada show that tour that's happening in the United States right now. And, um, it was just really cool because even though he does not like this loud music. He is f- very, very firmly against anything loud. <laughs> and so he did not necessarily like the um, loudness of the bands as he was watching them. But, um, you know, just meeting some of the people that I'm friends with in some of the bands. And uh, I, I think this was, was a very telling response from him as we were driving away from the show. He said, um, you know, Daddy, your, your, your friends are nice. And uh, that is what it just kind of brought this flood of emotions on where I was like, I really, the relationships that cr- we create through this awesome music scene, that is what has lasted me for so many years throughout my life. And, uh, it's just something I feel so passionate about. So to yeah, have my son be able to kind of recognize that and understand that it's important. I just, I loved it. So anyways, shout out to all of my friends for making him feel very, very welcome at the show. So Anyways, let's talk to Georgia. Like I said, Discovered Magazine is celebrating their 10-year anniversary. And if you are not a subscriber, you need to get with the program. <laughs> because they are a great magazine. Comes to you once a month. Ships very quickly from here in the United States of America. And um, yeah, I just love what they do. So check out Discovered Magazine. You can find them easily on the interwebs because, you know, that's like, we're, we're, we're pretty good at Google at this point. So anyways, let's talk to Georgia Rawson. Go! Truthfully, I want to say that I got exposed to Discovered. It was probably 2019, 2020 is when it really popped onto my radar. And I just loved, I was immediately taken by the, you know, print forward approach, obviously, of producing a magazine. And the balance that you created with the idea that it's a magazine, it's professional, but also felt like it was coming from a human. And that connectivity of, the zine culture that I know many people worship. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm going to say, like, do you feel that that's a accurate description of what you were, um, you know, kind of trying to build over those many years, or is that am I completely off base?
3: The longer story of this, now that I actually realized that we're recording, um, my my dad, you know, he's he's the one who got me into punk and hardcore growing up. So he would take me to shows, or we would listen to music, or you know, as a 12 year old, he probably shouldn't have given me rage against the machine self titled. So when he asked me to do the dishes, I said, fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. Right. Um, you know, so, and, and so he being very close to him, he humanized punk and hardcore for me, but he was, he was very driven. He was a very successful consultant and like in his career and stuff like this. And I, I think that really struck something with me where we went, I went, you know, you had to do work experience for school a lot of my friends were just going to like the local record store. That was really cool. Or like uh, chain stores at a time, like Virgin Records. Um, when they still had stores, this is just how long ago this was. It's 2008, 2009. And I just emailed Kerrang and was like, Hey, can I come do my experience with you guys? And between us, when I got there, it, it, uh, I, had, I had mixed feelings. Like it was cool. And you know, I'm very grateful for the opportunity, but it had, I think maybe because I don't know, it was something just as simple. I think it was like the office lighting and it felt very like, stale you know there wasn't Mm -hmm. really a lot of like people talking to each other bouncing ideas off which is something that I really instilled in my team and it was kind of just like people saw it as the nine to five they go on at five you know at nine a.m they left at five p.m the office lights went off and then I'd be going from my work experience to shows with friends and there would be a lot of bands playing and the next day I'd go back to Kerrang and they'd be like oh we wouldn't cover that it's too niche so I remember at the very end of that work experience I stood uh, outside this guy called Nick, because I kept extending it, right, because I was writing reports to them on, like, the meat, Like, it, it was, like, back in the day of forums, so I was finding out new bands for them from, like, talking to friends that were on forums and then going to Kerrang! and being like, hey, like, you know, I, it's like that movie Almost Famous, you know, like, I'm, I'm a 15-year-old kid, so if I'm telling you this is what you should be covering, it's because it's very legit, because my friends are the genuine readers and are the music fans. So the way of, like, humanizing press, I guess, kind of came from being in that environment of, uh, kind of discovered its roots and how it started. And I, I, know, I know this sounds like a bit of a tangent, but what it was is um, Comeback Kid was playing the Underworld. Nobody was covering them despite them having this incredible show. And I was across the road at the Electric Bullroom, um on the Never Say Die tour. And at the time it was Suicide Silence headlining and it was their original vocalist, Mitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that kind of relationship with that band came about because I, I was photographing, you know, that was, that was my plan originally just to be a photographer in the scene. Um, I was photographing portraits of tattooed people, and through one way or another, the guy got my phone number. And rang up. I was like, "Hey, do you want to come photograph my portraits?" And I was like, "Oh my god, yeah!" But even someone as big as him, like the fact that he gave me a phone call was like a really human, human way of interacting. And you know, I'm in their dressing room. I'm, I'm wearing a shoes, portraits, doing some kind of like fly on the wall stuff. And you know, I'm talking to Andrew from Comeback Kid because a couple of his friends were on that tour. I think it was D's Nuts and a few others. And you were just treating them like human beings. And then you would see the environment change when a journalist, quote by quote, came in. And, it's, you know, it's no disregard of the journalists. They're very professional. They're there. They're doing their job. But the kind of nervousness and and the anxiety and, like, the... And I remember just being, like, it's... In, you know, it'd be interesting to hear what their answers were almost, like, press-trained answers, right? Like, go, go, I've got to say this. I've got to promote this record, this tour, et cetera, et cetera. Versus kind of how much better I think reading those articles um compared to the human conversations I was having with bands so like you know that's something that we try to do is build relationships with the people that we work with and that we're around in a respectful and you know very human manner and just yeah I, I think that's what leads that's kind of like led Discover to have this and like even 10 years into this you know I've, I've freelanced for a couple of bigger magazines it's been cool and You know, Discovered is a a full-blown business. You know, it has revenue. It has accountants involved. It has, you know, everything that you have for an actual structured enterprise, if you will. And, you know, especially working with vinyl now, like your warehouses and warehouse managers and all of these people. But everything's very, everything and everything around, and everyone, sorry, around Discovered has come from Hardcore. You know, Bailey, who runs Overcast, that does our American distro. I met through Andrew through Comeback Kid. Like, our biggest um selling covers i mean one that today is three years old is um have heart when have heart announced those reunion shows Kerrang put an article up online and everyone in the scene was suddenly told like no magazines can cover this photographers will be selected to cover but they're not allowed to sell the photos to magazines like there was a real strict sense of no press so so again in in the way that i felt that you know hardcore allows you to kind of see everyone on a very similar level, obviously you can idolize people and appreciate their work and treat them with that respect. And, you know, we never not do that, but it's like, you know, you can still have these conversations with them. And I reached out to Pat and I was like, look, you know, I am a magazine. That is what I do. But the flip of it is, you know, we, we come from punk and hardcore and I know it's from something, you know, I just saw him last night, actually at the fiddlehead shows. We're having a chat about this and he was being very vocal about these points on stage actually. And it was like, you know, but I, f- I fully believed in what he was doing with those shows. You know, he was raising money for the absolute inhumanity that was children being separated from their parents with the ice raids and stuff. And I said, look, why don't we come together and we'll do this interview, we'll run this cover. You know, we raised $10,000 for, for the charity that he was working with on, on those shows. And, and I think that really was when around the time that you said you picked up on discover and other people did like 2019, 2020, because I think what people were suddenly seeing is like, we weren't covering hardcore and punk from the perspective of, you know, press release to magazine. It was suddenly, we were working with people in the scene and it's, you know, like Bane, when we found out they were going to do that documentary, it was, you know, it's one of the most moving stories I find that are really like, you know, hold dear. And is at for me right at the center of the magazine, which was, um, I found out this documentary was being made from Sonny that does Hate 5, and, like, again, I work a lot with Comeback Kids, so Andrew Neufeld put me in touch with Zach, and Zach was, he, you know, you know with with everything that was going on with Stu at the time, he was finding an excuse for them to all get together again, you know, for one last photo shoot with their friend, and, you, you know, because it was inevitable that, sadly, he was going to pass at this point, um, where he was in his cancer treatment. So releasing that cover, and then a month later, like, you know, sadly, Stu passes, but and just getting a message from Zach that's like, you have no idea how much this meant, regardless of it being a magazine cover or a tour or whatever, it was a chance for us to all have these photos with our friend again. That to me was like, that to me is something that I've kept very dear. Even, you know, as we work with the record labels, as we work with it in a business matter around advertisers and, you know, brand, you know, I I have repeatedly every, every week I have a different energy drink brand come to me like, yo, we should do something. And in turn we want X, Y, Z to hold the can on the cover. And I'm like, it could be very easy to be tempted by the money given that we know there's no real money in punk and hardcore outside of vinyl and a couple of things to be like, yeah, cool. Let's do that. But yeah, the, the humanization of it, I think is what, you know, makes people like you and me love zine culture and it makes, I don't know. I I really think that that's the edge of discovered. I I can't really articulate it per se, but I think it's, it's human, you know, you pick it up and, you know, I mean, Pat said this with, and this documentary that we're making um, that I'll go into a bit later on, it's like, you know, he picks it up and he's checking out new bands in there and he's like doing this, but it's got his favorite bands on the cover. And, you know, he said the same thing, it's zine culture and it's, you know, and, and, and I still go to shows. I'll always pick up a zine. If somebody has one um, subculture is doing a really cool thing in the UK at the moment. That's another zine that's come about. And like, they do like a listing of like DIY punk and hardcore shows coming up. And on that same listing, you've got like, when strikes are happening and protests and, I don't know, and it was cool. Like they listed our anniversary show on their listings. You know, I went introduce myself for this uh, this DIY event we were just at, and like picking up zines, or you know, you know. I think that's what really allows discovered being kind of raised in. You know, like I, I honestly say, I was raised in punk and hardcore. Like, and I know that that's kind of a cliche, but you know, my 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 dad. It was punk and hardcore really shaped his ethos. He passed that down to me with some questionable music tastes, <laughs> to say the least. But yeah, like I, I think for me as well. But also seeing him strive and do so well in business, like it feels very hard for me to separate the two. And I and I know that there is that counter argument that you know DIY and hardcore isn't a business, isn't this. But it's like if we if we also start a thing that way, then we wouldn't have a successfully running podcast like you, or we wouldn't have a successfully running Sound and Fury or Outbreak and stuff like this. So yeah, I, I think. I think humanization, it's interesting that you brought this point up because I've really been scratching my head thinking, yeah, how do I sum up what's been key to us running for the last 10 years?
2: Yeah. Well, I think I honestly, and the only publication that I can really point to that has been doing this for, you know, as long and, uh, longer than you guys have like decibel magazine based out of you know the united states and philly and the reason that they have been able to be so successful and like i mean i literally have subscribed since like issue one but like exactly everything that you're talking about the articulation of the culture the fact that they can spend you know four pages opining about like canadian border crossing and like all these things that you would be like is who is interested in this like is this meant for like four people but that's exactly what you're talking about where it's like you feel like a part of you is embodied in this magazine and i think that that is what to your, and exactly to your point of just the the fact that you can make this professional and make this a business but still not lose the core of it and the heart of it and still be able to you know grow and expand and introduce more people to exactly what it is so anyways Obviously, I'm patting you on the back, but I, I think that's it. <laughs> I, but I, I think it's an important point, and clearly, you're passionate about it. Of just being able to, you know, thread the human process behind the fact that at the end of the day, this is passed through, you know, f- fingers and eyes and computers that are all attached to something that is very meaningful for them. Because you, like to your point, you have other talents. Like you take photos. You are a person that has a lot of different interests, and like you don't need to be doing this, but you do at the same time, you know?
3: Mm-hmm. No, no, for sure. And it's, it's interesting in that, you, you know, like what, what, my job is kind of like, I, I don't, I don't really say my job outside of discovered because I got my job outside of discovered because of discovered is I'm a consultant for like a creative consultant for a vast majority of brands, mainstream brands, automobile brands and stuff like this that are trying to uh, legally, I'm not, I'm not telling the man I mention them, but like I can't use their names. But, it, you know, I work with them in getting them advertisement and how to make them appeal to, like, pop culture pockets and stuff like this. And it's like, but I got that job because the guy who's now my boss in that area, I met him at Slam Dunk Festival because I was filming for Comeback Kid to get them a bunch of video reel for the, for announcing Heavy Steps, and the guy was watching them side stage, and we got talking because he loved Comeback Kid and then realized what it was that I was doing and was like, Hey, I actually work for this XYZ huge car company that needs someone with your skills, and it's crazy because it's like it's so far detached from punk and hardcore, but it came from that. And it's like because I, I I know that a lot of people argue this, but I really think it's an ethos. You know what I mean? If you see the way it's conducted, you know, and sadly there are people that don't always conduct themselves the best way, but like you know, if you talk to someone like Cat from Scowl or Sam Veldi or Marco from Avocado that was on your podcast, it's like. We all seem to have a vision of what it is that we're trying to do, which is like we're just trying to have a good time, but we're trying to like just leave something out there in the world. And leave, you know, and, and someone someone said something at Sound and Fury. I can't quite remember who it was we were interviewing, but it um, will probably come back to me. I think I think it might be Martin, but it was the thing where they said, yeah, yeah, it was Martin from Cherry. We were talking about Sound and Fury, right? And he was like, the main reason Sound and Fury works, and, and I really believe it's like what you do and Jeremy does with his podcast and like again, like the people that you, the cleverer pl- of people that you've had as guests is they all just really care about it, but it's like in hardcore, it, it, you get as much from it as you give to it. So on my end, I, I can't write and leave somebody an incredible album that's gonna change their world. But I've got some other skills that I've been able to right. utilize and yeah, turn into something. You know. Right.
2: No, exactly. It's like that. And that I think that people that find a level of success, whether or not they are directly correlated to creative arts or they take their disciplines elsewhere you're still able to take all of those things you learned, whether or not you can actually describe that as a, you know, here's my, uh you know, line item on a resume or whatever. It's like, those are still principles that you learn only because, you know, <clears throat> you put on a show or you did those things. And I, I think that's a very important point as well.
3: Yeah, it's, it's interesting in that respect. You know, I had to go through my resume the other day. I think it was more so curiosity at this point because everyone's moving into like LinkedIn, right? Sure. And it was like, my two references, one of them's like, uh, very senior business person at Warner music. And the other one is Sam Siegler. And I was like, I don't know what I list him as. Do I put revelation records or do I say the <laughs> drummer of youth of today?
2: Totally. Totally. That's uh, I, I, I absolutely love that because it's like, who is this? Who's this meant for? Like someone is going to read this and be like, who's this? Like, you know, but then some people are going to read it and be like, Oh, that's great. You know, Georgia has yeah, exactly. this as a reference. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, it was a weird one. I think I was applying for something. I think what it was, it, yeah, it was when the pandemic hit, uh, right before the pandemic, I kind of, again, it's like the opportunities I really find themselves, if like you're having the right kind of conversation, with the right people in hardcore. And it was, uh, yeah, I was interviewing um, Sam Siegler about you for today because I just came over. And at the time I was obviously working in, in all ages, The you know, as you went to the punk and hardcore record store in London, and, you know I've learned a lot from Nick over the years because he runs his business but he has so much heart when he does it sometimes it can be a, <laughs> a fun character but sometimes you know I, I think that's what you know it's really stuck with what he's doing which is why he's so respected so yeah Sam had like had a lot of time for the store and whatever and he was asking what it was I did and I remember like his kind of like his you know he was doing it as like an interview and at one point he was even asking me if he was recording and I remember being like oh god this guy's I think of like I get nightmares and I think of like that Henry Rowlands interview when he's ripping that kid to shreds and suddenly I felt like that kid and then I, I gave him a copy of the magazine afterwards I, in fact it was the have heart one and he must have seen it floating around or something but he was like suddenly like really attentive you know he was like gripping it and he was looking through it and I think he was seeing like whilst it's have heart you have major label adverts in there and like branded stuff and he asked me to come work with him at revelation records and it was you know and so yeah anyway fast forward I, that that was right before the pandemic hits and i was working with him and um, adam at the label on the the drain album campaign and, uh, and and they were just about to sign dare and it was kind of like okay let's get our heads together and figure out how drain's gonna bring out an album despite the world just having absolutely shut down um and i remember i was sort of thinking yeah i should probably start looking at like a job outside of music and because i've been working so much with sam and there were so many transferable skills i was like Okay, I mean, he's going to give me a good reference that's really relevant and new, because a lot of the time, some of the stuff that you're trying to apply for now, you know, especially because we live in a world now where it's like you can get degrees in music PR, you can get degrees in digital marketing, you kind of end up in this pool of like, oh, I'm not going to get picked because I don't have the right qualification. I mean, I, I mean, I have my degrees, you know, I have I'm free, but like, it's one of those where I was like they might not seem specialist enough. So you have to start digging up the skills that you learn. I mean, like, I, I joke about this all the time with friends that are in bands. I'm like, you know, for example, uh, again, I mean, Andrew from Comeback Kid, we talked about this the other day just because he was here. But like, you know, I was saying to him, I was like, if Comeback Kid falls through, dude, you could be a location manager in film because you've toured absolutely every country and city ever. Right. You know what will look good for Game of Thrones. <laughs> so, totally. like, you know, so yeah, it's an interesting way that, I don't really find that... I mean, I probably just because I haven't delved into them enough, but there's not many other genres where they don't apply DIY as hard as we do, and therefore there might not be as many transferable skills when trying to transition from the quote-unquote real world versus what it is that we all, we all love to do, you know?
2: I'm just visiting rockabilia.com right now, and they have so much stuff. It It, it makes me laugh sometimes because I'm just like, really? Can you stock all this stuff? So first and foremost... You need to use this promo code, 100 words or less. That gets you 10% off your entire order. And I'm just taking a glance at their front page, and they have a bunch of tie dye shirts from all of your favorite bands, whether it's Grateful Dead, Misfits, Motley Crue. And they also have tank tops, you know, like Pink Floyd tank tops, Bob Marley, Prince, Queen. I don't care what you are into, you will be able to find awesome gifts for yourself. Awesome gifts for your family and friends. And if you use that promo code, it gets you 10% off, 100 words or less. It's all officially licensed stuff. They ship it from the Midwest in the United States of America, independently owned and operated. Love what they do, support them wholeheartedly. Forever indebted to Rockabilia and their support. And I want to give you that awesome discount 100 words or less, 10% off. And go buy yourself like a Black Sabbath t shirt, okay? So enjoy. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. just because uh, you just brought it up like you mentioned the uh, you know you you did go to school obviously got degrees and went through that whole process um like did you uh, i guess care about school was that something that was instilled by your parents as far as applying yourself or were you just kind of you know biding time and taking photos <laughs> <It> was your <laughs> real passion
3: uh it's an interest it, it was a mixture like i'm um... I was very fortunate to be someone that like school and stuff very, you know, I have a big love of history, for example, and literature and, you know, stuff like this. So for me, the subjects I was luckily studying came quite naturally to me in some way, but you know, it kind of start when I, when I got to the age of like 14, right. And it was right before work experience came around. My dad sat me down. Went, I've got a twin sister as well. So we were both very like similar in this way. Um, in fact, my whole family is very much like geared in this way where it was like, my dad was like, okay, what is it you want to do with your life? And I was like, I want to work in the music industry. He's like, okay, well, you, you we've tried to put you, in to make you learn to their poor ears, every instrument, and I couldn't play So I think he was trying to hint at like, you can't be a musician, you cannot play anything. And he's very right. I am terrible at every instrument i seem seen lay my hand to with no sense of rhythm. So he was like, well, what's the other side? And at the time I'd seen a, a copy of Kerrang! magazine and it was uh, My Chemical Rances, the Black Parade had just come out, right? And it was all about the PR stunts that were being done. And that's the first time I saw the word publicity. So I remember like Googling it and I was like, right, I want to get into like the marketing side or um, I watched like one of the Linkin Park DVDs and they were doing an interview with the art director at the record label. So I was like, okay, I can bring my creativity to the world of music and, and give to it. But my dad was like, okay, but how are you going to achieve that? Not in a shooting me down way, but in a very encouraging way of like, okay, maybe look at like these courses or these sorts of things. So that was it. And then I had a school teacher uh, called Mrs. Clover, who was my English teacher. And she was like your very sort of standard English English teacher, you know, glasses, wears her hair in a bun, very quiet. And she was going to Slipknot concerts and stuff, you know. So she was encouraging (laughs) me to do these essays on bands and write about music. And I was like, okay, there's like a career in this. So... The only thing that I was, I I got carried away because I'd already started discovering online by the time that I was like 16, right? So I'm coming out of college and uh, in the UK, 16, 17, I guess is like senior year for American schools. And then what you guys call college, we call university, right? Um, And I missed the deadline to apply, to get onto any degree. And I was working with a band at the time. Um, I was working with Skunk Annecy's manager with some of his smaller bands. And he turns to me and he's like, hey, I am teaching a degree and we need one more person to be on the course. Do you want to do it? I'll let you go on tour for three years was his exact wording. And then the government will like help you do it because they're paying your student student loans, which, you know, eventually you pay back. And that was it. And I, and I found that it, it was an interesting time studying music industry management because I was learning things like law at the time that my friends bands that I'd been photographing locally was starting to get to the level that the Scowls and the dares and the, you know, one step closer to are at. So I was able to put my degree in practice by reading their record contracts for them or helping them understand what PR was or, you know, micromanaging some other aspects because I was using the degree. But on the flip side, I had, uh, I had a marketing part of that course and the three years you would pass, a vast majority of your three years of your degree would be based on either getting an internship and doing well in it, as, like, credit, right, or starting a music business. And I remember my lecturer was like, yeah, just go home and work on Discovered and just hand me your student ID and I'll tap you in. So, like, with education, it, it is a mixture of, like, it's something that I feel very proud of my skills because I worked very hard for it and it was instilled in, like, study well, do well, but, you know, enjoy what it is that you're studying, you know, rather than those parents are like, you're going to become a doctor. You know, where I, where I grew up, it was, um, you know, my, my, my dad was – working in, in the business world but you know I was living with my mum because my parents were split she, you know she was working class she was a nurse and there were times where she wasn't able to feed herself to feed her you know in terms that she could feed her kids and then the people around in our neighborhood because my parents wanted to make sure I grew up somewhere nice you know that I, I look at them and a lot of them their parents were like putting this extreme pressure on you know you're going to Oxford you're going to Cambridge you're doing this and, and I, I, I used to find it kind of ironic that I was in all of the same groups as these people in classes as these people from but I think the difference was is they were being pressured by their parents to like study hard to be in this these top classes whilst I just loved it you know what I mean and that that yeah like like that that passion I think can be applied to anything I think that sometimes there is this idea that musicians aren't you know and I think about this often you know people sometimes there's the joke haha don't date musicians haha friends are musicians they think of them as not being able to exist in the real world and stuff like this and I I always just think about those kids that I I shared those classes with whose parents were pressuring them and like, and then I think about musicians I'm like, yeah, well they're band successful because they're passionate about it. The same way that someone's probably a really successful doctor because they're passionate about caring for people. So yeah, I I know I've got a long tangent here, but yeah, I think, I think education it's like, I I do think it is a privilege and it's one that I'm very aware I have, but I don't think it's also one that's like, it's detrimental that you study a degree in music management to become the music industry again, especially like in the world that you and I exist in.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Especially too, where that idea that, you know, school kid life, your parents, like all realistically you are doing is just exposing yourself to all these different, you know, ideas and forming, um, your own passions and interests and hobbies. And like, I I think that's where, you know, People like you, people like you and I and many of our friends. When you have peers that don't aren't able to find things that they're passionate about, that's where you're just like, oh, really? Like I just love people who are like, yeah, just not really into music, and you're just like, really? Like not at all? <laughs> like it's like, like yeah. that that it's such a foreign concept. But then it's like you know maybe they're obviously very passionate about music or or I mean not music but movies or something like that. But um, yeah, I understand. Like you're education didn't, uh, push you towards the pursuit of things. It just, you know, you had a few signposts along the way that amplified that passion, especially by the fact that your dad was introducing you to a bunch of cool independent music.
3: Yeah. And, it, you know, say my mom, like growing up, um, I mean, she ended up in, in the world of, uh, healthcare, obviously, you know, she was a nurse, but when she was growing up, you know, I've got some incredible photos of this. It's like, she was a mod and a punk and she was going to like the clashes, uh, you know, rock against racism shows. And like, you know, so from a young age, like I think both my parents kind of having that spirit of punk and growing up in a household with it, A, it was really hard to rebel against them. Like I said, if your dad at the age of 12 is handing you a Rage Against the Machine CD, I remember that moment of being like, damn, this guy is so cool. My teenage years are going to suck. I can't like rebel against this guy. I remember he took me to see um, a couple of bands and some of the bands I actually work with now because it was 20 years ago when they were playing. And I remember just being like, oh, I wanted to hate hardcore and punk because I was like, oh, it's my dad's music. But I was like, oh, but I really like it, and I really like right. people, and I love how friendly everyone is, and the sense of community, and and yeah, and, and the only, I, I guess, the only thing with growing up with like two parents that were really into punk and shared that ethos, the only flip of it was like it instills instilled a really strong belief system in me and a really strong moral system in me. So like when I had people in my class that were saying things that were like you know especially in the early 2000s where i guess like you know we still live in the world of american pie and stuff but you're having people make misogynistic comments or make judgmentive comments. you know i grew up in an area that in surrey it's so weird because you're technically the sixth borough of london and and london as you know can have its, its mixture of different types of working classes and neighborhoods and stuff um but then if you walk around the corner you're in like the equivalent of Mayfair and their parents are buying them cars and they're like the rich kids, you know, and conserv- very conservative families. So the problem I had from being into this music, but being uh, well-educated and, and in that education system, I didn't get on very well with my peers. So for me, I was like, yeah, I don't need to know many people at school. I'm not going to know them in like five years when I'm working at Kerrang. Um, I was like, I'm just going to make friends at shows and then those people you're making friends with at shows, I was like, you know, that you don't always go to school with them. So, like, that was the only downside of, like, growing up with that is being around it so much that you couldn't have your parents telling you to turn off music because they couldn't understand what the band was saying or you're playing it too loud. They're probably telling you to play it louder. But then when you <laughs> grow up in a highly conservative neighborhood where they want to go, you know, a lot of people around my age or younger just I, were either just going out and doing shit they shouldn't be doing, which is part of teenage life i guess or they were succumbing to the pressures of like i've got to be an oxford educated doctor and you know like very much a lot of people around me when i was growing up were into the idea of being comfortable being in that one percent if that makes sense in society rather than the the working class families that were around us and and, you know my brother's friends a lot of them did luckily come from working class backgrounds so i was exposed to that And, and again with like my mother's my mother's line of work and the way the national health system is over here But yeah, I I think that was the only catch-22 if a kid grows up surrounded by punk. If they don't find other punk friends, it can kind of be a slightly isolating experience, especially in the education system, where that creativity and that strong will against going against the system isn't well celebrated.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I totally get that because, yeah, you're just left to your own devices. And I mean, if, if the only thing that you can bounce stuff off of is your parents, like you're, you're not going to want to do that. That's not interesting. <laughs> you're like, is this band cool? You're like, no, I got to find this out on my own that not your I don't need your opinion on this. <laughs> um, as you progressed in regards to, uh, you know, pursuing photography and, uh, you know, journalism, I mean, it, to me, it was clear that photography has been kind of the through line of your life. Uh, did you Like, how did you discover that? Was that, uh, pardon the pun there, but (laughs) how did you trip across that? Was it, um, you know, just getting introduced to it via school or something else? Uh,
3: Well, like I said, I used to get frustrated that I couldn't play anything. My sister could sing really well. My brother had a sense of rhythm. I think he picked up various instruments, but I I couldn't do, I was was fuming. So I would really get into, like, album art. And then on the the plus, like I said, I have a really great relationship with my dad as being very obvious through this, but he was always, when we were out and about, he always had his camera on him. And he, the irony is, I think the thing that I love right now is how film photography is having its comeback because I remember him right. saying, oh man, I wanted my dad to buy me a digital camera, you know what I mean, for Christmas. And he gave me his old film camera and was like, if you're going to learn about it, you have to learn about it from its origin. And again, I think that comes from punk and hardcore. He, he sees these new wave of bands. He's like, well, oh, back in the day, you know, like, I feel like he gave me the photography take on that. So yeah, and like, he, uh, growing up, um, you know, he had not to sidetrack too much, but the reason I fell into like these passions that I have, um, he, he had a severely disabled sister growing up. Right. So I had this auntie, my auntie Jane, um, which was a, uh, caused by thalidomide that was taken during my, my grandmother's pregnancy. And so my dad really carried this ethos into me, which is to celebrate the various aspects of things that we're privileged to be able to do in our day to day. So, Celebrate the body, which means to like work out, keep it in good shape, you know like I got into kickboxing because I was like okay, I'm able to ex- express myself through my body language here and then you know appreciate being able to hear a- and great things you know listening to good music, being around other people having good wonderful in depth discussions. I'm um, celebrating the mind, always learning a new language, always you know keeping active with your brain and reading and, and, you know, listening to podcasts and and is his more recent thing. He's finally reached the age of transitioning into talking to podcasts with me. Um, and you know, and then, you know, the final one was, I like seeing the world, like always, you know, find something great every single day. That's you know, it got me into like, definitely not hardcore, but (laughs) birdwatching, you know what I mean? Sure. Outside, uh, the midnight hour. I mean, where that world kind of crossed was I was outside the midnight hour when writing outplayed sat down in the San Fernando Valley and like, it was sick to see Ryan outplay's DIY show, but I was like, oh, f- hell yeah. I've just seen a hummingbird for the first time ever. You know, so photography, <laughs> photography was like, it, it's great because it allows you to see things differently. But the curse of it is that you see everything as a really great photograph. And then when film got really expensive, it means that you're going to burn through your, your, you know, jean pocket trying to afford to do it. But yeah, I mean like, and that was it for photography. And I think that that's another thing we've discovered is like when we set out to do the branding of it i'm when i did that internship at karang i was on the photo desk and for me it was about like quality photographs you can feel that energy you can see it and again coming from our world of punk and hardcore look what's amazing about sound and fury it's like this all of this stuff afterwards of these incredible live shots and you can feel the energy and like being being able to leave that little timestamp and i gave and again give something back to a community that's given so much to me that that really encouraged photography you know
2: oh absolutely yeah you can it it, you in the same way that a skateboarder views the world differently than a person who has never thought about you know going off a five stair or whatever uh that's the same principle as photography where it's you don't look at the world the same good or bad that's just the truth and so yeah that's cool that you were able to you know open your lens up so to speak to everything Where like bird watching live bands you know candid shots i just think it's so cool that you can apply that to so many different uh ways to view the world
3: yeah i mean photography in particular i've moved away from photographing like i mean i'll do it if i see a moment but i love people like honestly like i thrive on social engagement i mean it's ironic because i live on my own but like (laughs) <laughs> 'Cause I sure. can't stand housemates. But like, you know, it is the thing of like, yeah, I love people and like going to that Fiddlehead show last night, interacting with those people, having those conversations, and and that's what led me into into the portraiture side is like you're looking at some of these people and they look weathered when they come off stage, but like, man, do they have like a really interesting face? Or like I was saying this funnily enough to their publicist earlier, but like Sammy from Drain, that guy has so much energy and this like wild personality, but he's you know, he's not turning it on for the camera. So, when you see him and he just smiles at you, you're like, oh my God, I've got to photograph that. You know what I mean? And like, people's faces I find in in the scene that we're in, like, they burn into your brain sometimes, whether it's just a fan that you walk past or, uh, you know, sorry, a gig goer in this case, or it's one of the bands themselves saying in midwave, talking through a joke, like, for me, that was like a cool little way of having something personal in comparison to sometimes, you know, live photography is great, but when you've got 9 million photographers potentially getting the same shot, it, it doesn't have that little bit of you in it. it. If you if you haven't nailed that, if that makes sense. Let's
2: talk about my friends at evilgreed.net. So what are they? They are a Berlin, Germany-based merchandise company and mail order solution for bands. And what they do is is they work with a very, very specific list of bands and record labels. They, they honestly act like a record label. So basically who they decide to work with, they full-throatedly endorse and will ship it to you around the world. Because you heard me say Berlin, Germany, right? You're probably like, ah, it's going to cost a lot of money if I'm based in the United States and like maybe it'll show up in a couple weeks. No, straight up. They ship it to you fast, and the shipping costs are very, very easy to swallow. Trust me, I've ordered from them. And let me just list some of the rad stuff they have going on. They have web stores for sun, blood incantation, power trip, nails, sergeant house. Shout out to sergeant house because they are putting out the botch, we came the the Romans reissue. And uh, if you haven't listened to the new botch song, please do yourself a favor. Holy moly. They also work with Closed Casket, Triple B Records. They also work with Russian Circles, Chelsea Wolf, Emma Ruth Rundle, Deaf Heaven. You get it. They are an awesome, awesome place where you can find all of that cool band merch. So please use the promo code 100Words, and that gets you 10% off your entire order. Again, 10% off, 100Words, EvilGreed.net. Enjoy. Something, uh, I've asked this question to other people on this particular podcast, but I think you would have a very uh, unique point of view on this. I've always been, I mean, especially like my years at working at Century Media and having that experience of a worldwide record label and how different uh, marketing campaigns work for different territories around the world. Press has always been such an integral part to, I don't care what style of music it is, punk, hardcore, metal, et cetera, et cetera. It's always so hyper focused in the UK in particular, where bands can be much larger than life over there than what they actually are in regards to maybe sales or ticket sales and all that sort of stuff. I'm sure you have some maybe working theories on why press has always been so incredibly important in the UK. But have you I'm sure you've watched it evolve over time. Uh, What's your kind of, I guess, point of view in regards to that?
3: Um, I mean, I'm trying to find be the best way to word
2: this. Yeah, I realize, I mean, I realize that's a big question. I understand. I, I just like the the line that I draw where it's like,
3: yeah,
2: especially here in the states where it's like, yes, of course, like in the 2000s where you had you know the large glut of magazines from alternative press to Outburn, all these other things, and like mm. you know web uh, web publications you know became a thing, and it, it was it just felt like. No matter where you kind of dropped that rock, there was always just like a ripple. But it was one of those things where if you had one or two pieces of press in the UK that all, you know, whether it was a Kerrang feature, whether it was you know something that happened in Rock Sound or whatever, it just seemed like that was such a much bigger deal than what it was in the States. And so that there's that comparison and contrast.
3: I think it's because in the UK, um, is, okay. So it's funny that you, that you say this, and and it ties back to the education a bit. In my last year of uni, I had to write my thesis, right? And it was 60,000 words. And I wrote it on the theory that, because at the time, there was a rumor that the NME was going to be given away for free. To my absolute bane of my life, 30,000 words in, it did actually go free. So that entire conclusion had to be rewritten. But I went into it like, no, people are always going to buy magazines because they're dedicated fan bases and... I came out the other side of that thesis like, oh, wow, the press really has to be given away for free because it has to be given, made accessible to everyone and ads and stuff like this. And I think a big part of that research was reading the story of the NME. Um, and, you know, the UK is renowned for literature. I mean, we're, you know, we're people of Shakespeare and all of these kinds of people. And it was interesting, I think, with press because – We've always had loads of newspapers. We've always were very like print heavy. You know, Oxford Publishing, for example, um, all of the major publishing houses. A vast majority of them being in the UK. So I think the UK naturally already has a strong uh, love affair, hundreds of years old love affair, even with print. Like print is just something that you grow up around, and it is a huge part of British culture let alone you start having these little explosions of pop culture and they had to be captured in some way that wasn't via the internet. You know, when the Sex Pistols were happening and that era of... As much as I don't believe in the Sex Pistols, that's a different discussion for a different day, but that era of punk and what was going on and post-punk in Manchester and stuff, the fans were talking about it, but they wanted something that was tangible. And I think, like, there is... In America, your your culture differs in the sense that there wasn't... I, don't, I mean, I guess I don't really know how to this is just me um, being theoretical here, but I think in America, it's such a vastly widespread country geographically, right, that A, even logistical points like distribution, you the, the cost to distribute something from one state to another is drastic, let alone like me getting 50 magazines dropped halfway up the country over here. So I think that's, that's one reason is like just the logistics of the U.S. handling uh, print. And, you know, the pure scale of your country versus the UK. B, it's probably the UK really has this incredible love affair. I mean, like you you taught, I mean, you were just in the UK for the, um, I'm assuming it was the first time. How many people were probably wanting to talk to you about Harry Potter when you got back? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, you know, the UK. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. So like, so to get back into the idea of the music press, I think if you take the UK's history of being at the center point on a multitude of occasions on various decades of, Pop cultural explosions, and then marrying it with the fact that we had the likes of the enemy and these, you know, magazines with hundreds, it, you know, two hundred year old. Some of them, some of these music magazines, you know, the enemy started two hundred years ago as a magazine to sell accordions, you know. So like they they have, you know, that's a magazine that's older than the U.S. as a country, um, you know. And I don't mean any of this as a diss to the U.S. Obviously, so I think that's probably why. But yeah, it, it, but on the, fl- I mean, the way that that works on the flip is. I started to feel like we discovered heavily in 2015, heavily in those first three years. I used to hate that the UK was so rich with music magazines because we'd get like, well, Kerrang's doing this and Rock Sound's doing that. And, you know, because I lived in the centre of London where the major press days were, which you would have known this from being a label, it's like you were fighting tooth and nail to get time with these people. So 2016, my cousin moved to San Francisco um, and... Uh, we were just talking, everything like this. And she was like, You should come out here and, and she just got me into a couple of bands. And yeah, like my um she got me into this band called Demon and me and I saw that they were doing a DIY tour in like the Bay Area and through California up into Utah and a couple of other places I'd never been. And I asked to jump in the van with them. I was like, Look, if I put my flight um, I'd been working and saving for something but aka the reality that life was going to hit me outside of being a student i was like can i jump in the van with you guys and document-
2: <laughs> yeah can i press pause yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah
3: yeah yeah and just like and just like doing almost famous you know what i mean the kid goes on tour You I mean that movie really shaped who i was and again we can discuss that a bit later so yeah doing that with them and just documenting it for a magazine and then the pro was where that worked where that that i don't say like a lack of culture but the difference in magazine culture worked because next year, you know you know uh, in a very short period of time, 2016 to now, those six years, I'm I mean I mean the backstage of Sound of Fury and everyone's talking about discovering it is because there isn't other magazines that are maybe catching on and and doing that in comparison to like the UK, you know we are one of many titles that are covering this genre of music or these little subcultures and stuff like that. I mean there's whole news agents over here dedicated to magazines, but you know, you're in LAX airport, and you can You could probably pick up Rolling Stone. You know, in, in there's not many other music magazines. So, I mean, like on the flip, it's realizing that again, I can bring something not just to my community here in the UK, but like the US and a and North American and Canadian and Vietnamese other communities through making a magazine.
2: Yeah, no, you're very right, and that that the geographical concentration definitely makes sense. And like you're talking about these. Sort of hotspots of culture, whether it's, you know, New York, LA, London, like that, it does become easier. But you're right. Just the simple logistics of being able to deliver <laughs> these, these pieces of press, uh, you know, across the country in a very short period of time definitely makes a difference. And that, that's something I didn't necessarily consider. But yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, Something I've noticed about a, you know, discovered in particular. I mean, I know it's very apt because of the title of it, but you and the editorial team, I mean, you know, I know you are the editor, but you and the rest of the people that obviously write for the magazine seem to be really uh, proud of bringing bands on into the, you know, discovered family as far as hey, we really like this band's demo. We really like the seven inch, the first full length or whatever. And then you're proud to kind of follow along the band's journey, even if they you know, don't end up being the most popular band in the world. If they do receive some sort of uh, attention beyond just your pages, you're kind of proud of that. It, has that always been kind of hardwired in the magazine or was that kind of an evolution uh, of the way that you, you kind of covered bands? Uh,
3: I, mean, I mean, so it's a mixture really like um, okay. you know my my exposure to hardcore through my dad a lot of these bands had already been around for 15 years or so but more more you know he was showing me Agnostic Front who already had a big history and I kind of felt like I missed the party so I was like I gotta I'm to go find my CBGBs I'm gonna go find my Mad Bull. you know what I mean so and that was it And and it kind of really came from watching that movie Almost Famous where like you know, he, he goes up to the bouncer and he puts on his sort of like older person voice. He's like, I'm with Cream Magazine and I'm here to interview Black Sabbath. And the bouncer just looks at him, and closes the door on him. Like, I felt like I was that kid. And then Stillwater rocks up for anyone who's not seen the movie. No spoilers, because this is literally the like, the first 15 minutes and is the storyline. Um, Stillwater, this new band, just rocks up. And he goes, I'm a journalist. They're like, oh, you're the enemy. And then he goes, well, and then, you know, and then he switches to being a fan. It's like, I really think you did the right thing by self-producing it yourselves. And Russell, those guitars are incendiary and stuff like this. And I could probably quote this movie, quote, quote, but because I've watched it so many times. And you suddenly see the way that these smaller bands are like, hey, actually, come on tour with us and stuff like this. And, you know, I get asked a lot, a lot, like, how do you start a career like this? And it's, it's not about going and working with the biggest band straight away because they're already at a point in their career where they – and that sounds bad, but they don't really need you. You know what I mean? Like there isn't like you're not making some kind of impactful change. So I mean, the best example is is Gulch, right? Like they had a very short span career, but from the get go, we were so authentic and you know, and in word of mouth, like again, you know, my friends are the are the same age and the kind of people that are the readers. Whether it's like they're twenty year olds or forty eight year olds that are still in the scene, etc. So they were telling me about Gulch. And again, this was in the beginning of my series of going to and from the US to try and discover new music and bring it back here. So I was the most interesting person amongst that, my circle of friends, to be a little bit frank. Um, it was the thing of like, yeah, like, I mean, Gulch was that. And then, I mean, that, that was a really special example. We're seeing them close, sound and fury and being stood on that stage. And, and afterwards, like they get cut. Uh, they played over their time or whatever and they're all like chanting like the names of different things that like they meant them that you know that meant something to them and sam the drummer who does drain goes discover discover and i was like wow like we've ridden with this band through their career you know we we didn't jump on the second that like Gulch was this big thing or scowl was this big thing i mean scowl is an amazing example of that evolution uh first issue gets released in the pandemic i was like this is it this is going to be the last issue what are we all going to do so we ran the Drain cover and yeah, the introducing section, there was this tiny little, like maybe like three lines. And that was Scout. A year later, cats on a cover compilation, right? Another year later, they're, they're opening for Limp Bizkit. And the people that I was meeting along the way of their journeys and my own journey, it's always come back to like, oh yeah, I got into this band because I discovered. Or uh, yeah, like you you work with my friend's band. Hey, I'm in a band. You want to work with us? So it ties back to like, being at the, the the center of discovery you know pun intended and being at that uh almost you know i almost feel like an explorer and and these people that went you know like often that you see work for the national geographic these professional adventurers i feel like that's kind of what what discovered is or at least what what i've always been keen to be is the is the explorer in, this, in in punk and hardcore and in music and pop culture? You know, I want to go find the cool things and tell people about it and be and be the first to plant. Um, you know, I don't mean this in a uh, in a way that's imperialist, but I, I want to be like, yeah, hell yeah! Like, look, I told you they were good. Like, I love having that little bit of moment, not like a gloat, but being like, that's it. But I also think it's so important. And again, this is from when my internship was on the introducing desk and I was saying like, they're like, okay, cool. On to the next band. Like you have to grow it because I've also been at festivals, some of which I don't even go to anymore because I've seen every year, the same headliner is like Metallica or Iron Maiden or like another like old band. And I don't get it. They have a demographic to cater to, but it's like Parkway drive should be headlining. Turnstile should be headlining. So yeah. And I mean, like, I mean, Turnstile is an amazing, amazing example. Um, you know, they're on the 50th issue that we bought out. And what was cool is I, I, when I think of Turnstile, I think a lot of people think of like this, you know, the pink glow on album, the time and space cover, the, the current curly head, angelic Brendan on stage. I think of going to see them in, um, in London many, many years ago, this shaved head guy, maybe like 15 people watching them. And afterwards I, I went to the merch and I bought a copy of pressure to succeed and step to the river and at the time I was working in, like I said, a punk and hardcore record store. And I was like, nah nah, trust me. Like, let's order like 50 copies of these seven inches. And Nick was like, oh, fine, let's do it. And every time somebody came in and was like buying an, an incendiary record or a backtrack record, like handing them those seven inches, because I mean they were so cheap to buy at the time, right? Because the band wasn't big. They're probably like £3.50 a piece. Um, so like the old customer, you could give it them, or like if you're a kid, you're gonna be like, yeah. Screw it! Like I'll give you a fiver. I'm getting another seven inch for free or whatever. And and now like you know, there's there's moments like watching that band play roundhouse, and you just have these little like, oh yeah, moments. Like there's probably somebody in here that got handed that seven inch, and I think keeping that discovered. But I also think it's like it's a it's about creating longevity with discovered. It's about keeping the finger on the pulse. So, um, I was meant to go out to So What Festival this year. This is a very recent example. I couldn't go. I can't remember the reason. I think. It fell on the weekend of my birthday, and normally I'd be like, screw it, let's go to a festival for my birthday in the other side of the world, but I feel my parents had something planned or my sister, tw- my twin sister is the very dominant one in the we are doing this for our birthday, we are doing this for Christmas kind of scenario. So I was like, okay, there's something that clashes with this. And I got so many texts from friends being like, yeah, I just checked out this band called Pain of Truth. Like, you should get on them. And I think that's cool that there are some bands that are absolutely astronomical in our world and when they find a new band, they bring it to us. They like, you know, it's like they say it's like when you when you, you know, a wild cat turns up to your house and it brings you its kitten. That's how I feel like about. Right. Music. Like, you know, and people kind of be like check out Pain and Truth. So I was like, OK, I want to see what this is about myself. I won't read. I won't read any reviews. I won't Google them. I won't see if there's hypes on like Reddit subedits. I went to see them live and seeing how much people were buzzing in that room on the hottest day of the year, absolutely losing their minds. I was like, yeah, we got to put them on a cover and grab them. I was like, let's let's shoot the cover right now, you know, and, and run it. And that's like one of my most successful covers of this year. So like, I don't know. It, it, it's a weird one. I guess it's the same way that when a band's writing an album, right? And, and you probably have this being in a band you hit that moment, you know, when you're like writing a song and there's all like the throwaways and you're trying to figure it out, like the bridge and the chorus and does this riff work and did, did, we, did we mix this properly like this? And then you have that moment when it all comes like crashing together and you're like, yeah, 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 to the drummer, like do that again. And like to your guitarist, like, oh, yeah, and if you do this part again, that same spark and that same feeling is what I, is what I get. Like I could be listening to a playlist of 100 new bands, and I'll hear something, and my ears will prick up, and I'll have that like, "Oh, hang on, what was this?" Right. You
2: know, well, and awesome. and honestly, okay. not 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 to interrupt your train of thought, but it's like I the the connective tissue that you have with that idea of you know you having experience working at a record store and just the feeling that tactile moment, like you were talking about, where you have a seven inch and you sell it to somebody because you either played it for them in the store or you just told them that they would like it. That it, no matter how technologically advanced our society gets in regards to music distribution you're always gonna like that is going to feel so superior (laughs) to you know getting an algorithm delivering a playlist to you like it's exciting to have that but it's that that the filtered view whether it's like i'm getting put on to new bands because of the magazine or my friends say it's like those are the most realistic you know the shortest lines between you checking something out and listening to something are those experiences.
1: at purdueglobal.edu.
3: yeah exactly and I, and I think you know you you sum that up in a way first of all sure, way than no 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs> no it's not. but i just yeah. I, I, I i like the, the the record store connection it makes a lot of sense the um there's two two last things i wanted to hit on was the idea that you know you are are very outspoken person in regards to uh, not only do you wear your your politics on your sleeve and you make sure that uh, your opinions are um you know not in a uh, overly alienating way but just like okay this is what you are when you are aligning yourself with you know reading the magazine supporting the magazine um but then also the business aspects of it like you said you stand this up on its own people you know that are responsible for uh getting this out on a monthly basis I'm sure there were a lot of mistakes as you were growing this thing and, you know, getting to a point where you've existed for 10 years now. What are some of the illustrative points that you kind of like, oh yeah, I really messed this thing up and I, you know, printed five blank pages or whatever. (laughs) Were there any sort of blunders that you're like, oh, I learned a lot from this experience?
3: I mean, there was even a recent one where I won't name the band or the PR teams, but like we... I was watching, I watched a band, they came on stage and I was like, oh my God, we need to get them on the cover. So I just DM them. I was like, yo, look, I run this, I want to get them on the cover. So they put me onto their PR, that wasn't the blunder. And I was working with the American guy and we had everything lined up. And then someone emails me like, hey, we're representing them in the UK. So I was like, oh, then, then surely they got to be on this email chain. And then the American guy was like, but wait, no, I got them this cover and you end up in these weird little, like, you're like, oh, ste- there's a lot of stepping on toes moments or like, I think maybe one or two times where I've been on a tour and way back in the day when I was a little bit more hot headed and like, you know, you be the photographer on the stage and then you have the publicist or whoever in your ear that's like, actually tonight, you can't shoot London in the electric Ballroom because Kerrang is doing an exclusive. And then you're going, well, hang on, man, I'm on the tour. And then like, I think it's the pokes and proddings, but it's about how you come back from those. And yeah, printing are oh, so many printing errors over time. I remember once, um, <laughs> I think we printed a whole Whitechapel editorial that had Lorem Ipsum filling it out. No one ever (laughs) secretly. Yeah, that was definitely, I think Lorem Ipsum is like the bane of it. Like I tell my designer, like, can you please just not use mock text? Can you just put the editorial straight in? Or like someone uh, will accidentally misquote someone in what they think is a very innocent way because you're sticking to word counts. And, you don't realise that it's making them sound like it was one particular band. I mean, it wasn't a bad point to make, but I think maybe they were quite pacifist, but it made them sound like they were going to beat up abusers rather than just like be like, the scene is no place for like <laughs> these kinds of people. And their label guy ringing me and was like, yeah. But I, but I mean, also, there, there is it's interesting about wearing your politics. I mean, at the height of Black Lives Matter, there was a lot of magazines that were clinging to get any person of colour on on their covers that month for maybe reasons that wasn't for the right, when when you see that after those protests had passed, and obviously it's still a very important message and it's something that we should very continuously support, you you now see that their magazines are completely whitewashed again. And I am very outspoken on that. And there is one or two major instrument brands that despite pretending they wear those politics on their sleeves, were willingly pulling adverts because they were like, uh, well, someone in our head office who might be slightly more conservative leaning and wants our major branding, you know, our major instrument brand to remain apolitical, doesn't want us to run an ad with something that carries a strong political message. So there is like, you have to think about sometimes of like, you can't win every argument. You can't fight every single battle as long as you know that what you're doing is true to yourself. and right. Yeah, also like many bands have probably learned, don't argue with people on the internet. It's such a waste of time. I had a tweet once, it was so random, it was like out of context, nowhere. It was like, Hey, discard I think the rest of your team are great, but I think your editor's an ass. And I was like, I don't know this guy. I could be myself over it, but okay, Like <laughs> I'm unapologetically myself. I guess I'll just keep keep doing what I need to keep doing and you know, feel free to reach out if if I upset you in some way, but yeah, I, I guess it's like anything. I guess it's like when you're being in a band and then you accidentally like wind up a promoter because you didn't realize that they said that you weren't bringing just breakables and they said that you were going to bring the whole backline And then you're like, oh, now the rest of the band are pissed because they can't play. Like there, there is a lot of stuff, but I think it's it, it's better to look at everything as like you know, like it, it, it's, it's like anything when you grow up as a human being, whether you're becoming a, a kickboxer. I mean, like a kickboxing is a very recent thing where I can pull that as an example. It's like, if you don't do the move properly, you're getting hit in the face, <laughs> you know, or you're getting, you're really yep. up on the ground or your arm's going to really, really hurt or you're going to pull something. But the next time someone goes to do it, when you're in that ring, um, you, you, you've got the reflex and, and it's built into you. If you, you put the work in to make that change and learn that lesson. So that's, that's probably it. I mean, there's, I think I can't, I think every, if I was to sit here and start reeling off every single mistake I made, I think I'd be in a, I'd put <laughs> myself in a very. <laughs> no,
2: for sure. And very, yeah, the reason I asked that is not, you know, to put embarrassing moments out there, but it's just, usually it's those mistakes that are, are not only do you learn from, but are very informative when people, are trying to build things on their own. It's like, of course, like no one is perfect. Everyone is going to mess up so many times until all of a sudden they do something with some level of intelligence or, um, yeah, you're just able to learn so much from that. So that's, that's the main reason I ask. But the last thing I want to hit on was the idea of what you were talking about in regards to, uh, you know, documenting, whether it's, you know, doing what you did at sound and fury. And I know you're putting together uh, a lot of stuff in regards to the, uh, you know, documenting what Sound and Fury is. Um, but it, it seems like you definitely have a vision trying to contextualize a lot of, not only these bands, but kind of the the scene in general. Um, you can, you know, talk specifically about the documentary or talk about that general process that you're going through um, in continuing Discovered.
3: Yeah, I think like, yeah, so I think kind of touchdown on what we're doing at Sound and Fury because it's a little bit more public facing now is, I got put in touch with a guy called um, with with Trevor Cushing um, and he is incredible. So I met him through Andrew Cannon that does Santa Cruz because, you know, a little bit of a rewind on that was, you know, working with One Step Closer and lots of my friends that were into One Step Closer were like people that skateboards and they weren't people that I'd normally see at hardcore shows. But when I would go out skateboarding with them, they'd all be listening to One Step Closer. So I remember just talking to Andrew Cannon. He was never like hardcore fan. And I was like, why don't we do, like, a Santa Cruz video with them? And, like, that blew open the door of, like, you know, being genuine. When you start to cover subcultures, as we know with punk and hardcore getting huge with a lot of palooza involvements and stuff like this, which I I actually root for, and I think it's about time that we had our time so that when I'm stood there in a major label office saying, oh, I run a rock magazine, they're not looking at me and going, ugh, you're not, like, a Vogue or, you know, they don't see you as, like, a rolling stone. I think that that time is very well deserved. But... I see a lot of disingenuous um, involvement or attempts of involvement. Um, I mean, there was a, let's call them a, let's call them, okay, no, do you know what, actually, I, I think I can be honest about this one because it was all over the internet. Hard, um, the Hard Times did this, we are going to take over Los Angeles post Sound and Fury for a bunch of shows, and then was just not including local bands and, like, not including local promoters or, like, figureheads in the scene and they got eaten live for it. And it's like, even we discovered when we expand into like Canada next month, um, we are working with the local bands, the local promoters, the local labels, so that we aren't just this thing that was like, hey, we're going to come into your country and Imperial is your punk and hardcore scene. You know what I mean? And like, I, I think what, to, to go back into what we're trying to do with, like what we were doing, Sign of Fury, um, you know, I got introduced to Trevor Cushing. He was involved in a lot of really cool stuff, King of the Road, uh, jackass stuff like this, and he pitched the idea of making a documentary together. Originally, it was gonna about ten years of discovered. It was gonna be like a four minute doc that went out online and was ran for the ten year anniversary, right? But we would start talking to people because uh, we wanted to show like the wider context, right? And and as you know, punk and hardcore flows through so many subcultures. So next thing you know, I'm talking to Jesse from Stick to Your Guns, but we're in his community space that he's built all power books which is incredible and you have people uh homeless members of the community coming in buy like you know taking um sorry take taking donations that he'd put out for them or you know some really really sweet moments you know some elderly gent comes in and jesse's like yeah i'll still drive you to your four four o'clock uh, dentist appointment later so like i was like okay we're going to talk about like the politics and then when you're talking about the politics, how could you not talk to Pat Flynn? And then Pat Flynn's talking about new music and hardcore getting through, pe- people getting through stuff. So then how are you not talking to Walter Delgado that whilst his time in prison was getting letters from Aaron from Bane? And you know what I mean? It's so like, what we're trying to do is, I, the, the aim of this documentary and the, the project that we're working on, and my God, if you think coming up with a band name is hard, please try coming up with a documentary name. And if any of your listeners have any suggestions, I am very open to that um but what <laughs> okay. to do with the contextualization of that is sorry I mean to cut you off there is um what we want to do is yeah we want to show that like it's an actual community like it's an actual movement and it's not just like hey I put on a Spotify recommends rap playlist or you know which I'm pretty sure you know the rap world has its own politics and everything as well and I think yeah that was the idea of it and I think I don't know. Like I, I, I've, we've probably both seen it in the in the time that we've been around in in these scenes. It's like it comes and goes in ways. But I really think, truly, this time around, we we are experiencing. And I mean, you probably saw it seven thousand people, or I, I think just over that being an outbreak festival. Imagine pre pandemic yeah. telling me that seven thousand people were going to be at a hardcore festival. You know, we're finally having our moment. But I think we're having our moment in a way. That in the seventies you had the punk movement. Suddenly, how you had the nineties. You know the eighties, CBGB's New York hardcore scene. I think we're finally having that again. And not to say throughout the years that there's been bad hardcore bands, etc., that haven't been deserving of that. And I think to finally be a magazine who's at the center point of that, it felt weird not doing a documentary about it. It felt weird not doing a documentary that's capturing on screen that less that last ever Gold Show or. Um, following a new band like Spaced Around, who very quickly in a short period of time is going from a band that started during the pandemic to touring Europe with Comeback Kid. You know what I mean? So like, I I think I'm answering what you asked.
2: (laughs) No, no, you are. Because I I think that's, I I mean, you hit the nail on the head in regards to uh, doing these things, whether it's a monthly magazine, whether it's, um, you know, something that is a little wider reaching, with this documentary, you're trying to place all these things in context. And I think it's really important for you to be able to have these cultural touchstones to where you could show a person, you know, like you were talking about at the very beginning, like the Bain documentary. And regardless if they found any value musically, they can clearly see that this was a meaningful piece of the overall puzzle. And I, I think that's a, a cool thing that you're trying to highlight is the fact that there is a watershed moment that is happening and a lot of people are recognizing it but it's like how will that be defined you know five to ten years from now it's like is this going to be even bigger or is this going to contract like many musical styles happen so i I think it's important what you're doing there
3: and and i think as well what i respect about podcasts like yourself and and other people and outbreak and stuff right hear, hear me out is and I think in a way, not to be self-respecting too much, but like we've discovered, we exist and thrive on a culture that is fan-orientated, it's community-orientated. So the minute magazines I've noticed, or podcasts, too, or you know, any, anyone who starts ignoring what the people in our community have to say, whether that's elevating a new band, bringing up social and um political injustices Notice how quickly those people disappear or it all crumbles for them and it's the same way that a band will like yeah it's great that like um (laughs) you know when I was trying to explain like the the new cultural side to PR and stuff I was like yeah this is we're kind of doing what the bands do on their sophomore records where some people are gonna be like oh I, I, I like the original sound and when you play backtrack style New York hardcore and now you're styles glow on, you know, like that's kind of like where we went with it culture-wise. But like, yeah, it, it's the same thing. I think it, just being a very unique thing that we are so lucky, whether it's you and I, Ray, or uh, the Outbreak Festivals or the Sound of is that something that we get to be a part of and we have the privilege of being a part of is that it is it just has this incredible current where it's all about respecting everyone. It's all about listening to the community. It's all about highlighting the hard workers, the stage managers, the photographers, the... Uh, tour managers the independent record labels like days and triple b like if we if if we don't cover these people and you know and and if we don't equally show our respect to these people and see all these people on on a similar wave look how quickly that could be seen disingenuous and therefore would be the would essentially be the end of what it is that you and i do
2: yeah no i i no, no better word said but um Georgia, thank you so much for hanging out and being able to paint the uh, picture of what Discovered has done and continues to do. So I, you know, as a fellow nerd, hardcore kid that covers stuff, I really appreciate the work you do. So thank you for sharing that.
3: No, no worries. And you know, one last thing I'll say on when you're saying fellow hardcore kid nerd, aren't we all just the nerdiest people, but we all love it.
2: Oh my gosh. Yeah. It just, it we can't stop ourselves. Like every time we call it out, it's just like, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> so yeah. yeah.
3: It's like, we're so upset. I, I don't think I've ever met someone who's like mediocre into hardcore. You know yeah. what I mean? I've never had someone who dabbles.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. You're either in it or, you know, you're in it for just a couple of years and then you kind of move on. But like, yeah, the people that jump across that, that uh, you know, line in the sand that you're just, you're in it forever.
3: Yeah, no, in fact, thank you so much for having me as well. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, even late at night in the UK so yeah. having an unravelling. <laughs> That's one thing, if I could fix anything in the world, is that we'd all be on the same time zone. But
2: That was that. Like I said, subscribe to Discovered Magazine. They've been doing it for a very long time, 10 years to be exact. And Georgia, I, I love her point of view. I love the support that she throws behind not only new bands, but old bands and everything in between. So Discovered Magazine, the real deal. They're doing the print thing. I love it. It makes me so happy. And that's why I am a paid subscriber myself. Next week, I have another amazing live episode from Outbreak Festival. Obviously, you, you notice the trend here. I'm being able to ...release these episodes now, and I'm very excited about it. So I have Dan Tracy from Deaf Heaven and Anthony from Ceremony. That's what's happening next week. It's a nice two-for-chat, both really, really fun discussions. Dan Tracy is the drummer, and honestly, I I actually joke about this with him in the uh, interview... Where uh, a lot of people just don't talk to drummers, <laughs> and it's 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 kind of sad because there are um, you know interesting things that uh, obviously drummers can share with us. Uh, Anthony, I've been fortunate enough to have on the show before, so uh, he was a great human being because he rolled in like three minutes before our chat after a horrific horrific travel day, but uh, made it happen. So next week another awesome live episode. Dan Tracy from Deaf Heaven and Anthony from Ceremony. Until then, please be safe, everybody.